And I just want to tell you how grateful I am to be part of this church family. I know some of you are hurting. I've heard from a lot of people this week. Uh, probably just a function of, well, it's gone on for a while now. The love of the Lord, the greatness of God that we've just been singing about, that's not going to change. Your circumstances have, and they will continue to change. The faithful love of the Lord never will. And today I have a hard passage for you. As you know, our commitment here at Crosspoint is just to go straight through books of the Bible. And this time, Jesus is going to give a very serious talk. He's going to give a shocking parable to readjust the mindset of the crowd and perhaps even more importantly, readjust the mindset of his disciples. It's going to be a hard passage. There's a shocking line in here that a lot of people just would rather not even be in the Bible. They don't want to imagine Jesus saying the things sometimes that Jesus actually does. So let's pray. And here's the difference. God will always be truthful with you. His truthfulness is never in question. The only question is whether you and I will be receptive to the truth he will tell us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning we've already enjoyed together. Thank you for Enid, who was baptized, Lord, this morning. Thank you for those who have come. This service, I pray that you would bless them, that you would lift their hearts and give them hope. Give them strength, Lord, from knowing the truth and from loving you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Luke chapter 19 is where we are. Ladies and gentlemen, if you open your Bibles there, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Last week we were in a very familiar story, a story that is taught to children in Sunday school, a story so famous that it had a song written about it, which says Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Anybody remember that song? We really missed an opportunity not singing it last week, didn't we? I don't know if the new generation knows that song, but we'll make sure that they do if you put, bring your kids to Sunday school at this hour, okay? From that familiar, loving story in which Jesus told a traitor to his nation, someone who had actually betrayed his people to help finance the Roman Empire that was currently crushing Israel underfoot. Jesus told a parable. It's a parable that has a line in it so shocking that it is often forgotten. I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody preach it. I'm sure people do because pastors preach through books of the Bible all the time, just in all my years in church. I don't remember if I've ever been in a service where the parable in Luke 19 was explained, and it's vitally important. Here's why it's important. The nature of sin and the nature of human beings under the effect of sin is that we are always tempted to deal with the God that we imagine and not the God who actually exists. A great Christian philosopher said years ago that ignoring the facts about reality leads to brutal encounters with reality. And that's true. If you don't know how the world really works, if you don't know what something actually is, if you don't know who someone really is, you're actually making yourself quite vulnerable in that ignorance. And we have so much God talk in our culture. 
You may have seen bumper stickers, for instance, that say coexist. It's a wonderful idea. And actually, we need to coexist. We need toleration. We need patience and human kindness. We need genuine tolerance in this world. But if you understand the bumper sticker and all the religious symbols that are in it, every one of the symbols represented on that bumper sticker is making a different claim about who God is and what He is like. They may all be mistaken, but they can't all be correct because they're saying opposite and conflicting things. Does that make sense so far? And when it comes time to deal with Jesus, Jesus is an actual person. He is the Son of God. He is eternal. John's gospel says that He was in the beginning with God and that He was God. So when we speak about having a personal relationship with God, we're talking about exactly that. We're talking about you, a real person, in relationship with another person who happens to be the king of the universe. If you don't understand just who that God actually is, you can't actually have a relationship with Him. You'll actually be having a fictitious relationship with someone you think is there or you hope is there. Make sense so far? For instance, growing up in, in Mexico, our family worked in cities, but we supported missionaries and occasionally met national Christians and helped train national pastors in the tribes of Mexico. Mexico has dozens and dozens of indigenous tribes that were there long before the Spaniards arrived. Some of those indigenous cultures worship the rocks and the trees, and they pray to the spirits that patrol the rivers. They have a sincere belief in a form of deity called spiritism where there are many gods, each with their own domains, and depending on what their customs and traditions demand, they try to make peace with those beings they cannot see in a whole bunch of different ways. The God of the Bible, the God who is Jesus, who validates His claims in history through His death and resurrection, He's not like that at all. But even Christians, in all the God talk that is so common in our culture, were always prone and always tempted to make God more than God is or make God less than He is. And I'm not saying in all of this that everyone can understand everything about God, but you can absolutely know Him personally. You can have a certain truthful, growing, and loving relationship with the God who made you and the God who made the whole world and everything in it, you included. That's why Luke chapter 19 is such a shocking parable, because there's a line in it, and it's right at the end, where you're going to hear Jesus say something so harsh that well, frankly, people tend to forget it's in the Bible. I know about it because years ago I was at lunch with somebody and they asked me about the line at the end of the parable. And probably because it had been some time since I'd read it and probably because maybe in my mind I tried to suppress it because it's such a shocking line, it took me a second to realize and remember what he was actually talking about. Here's the setup. Jesus has dealt with Zacchaeus and told him to Zacchaeus' great enjoyment that his sins will be forgiven. 
that he's actually going to be welcomed, and he already is in the family of God. And then Luke 19, verse 11, tells us that leaving Zacchaeus' house, Jesus continues his journey on toward Jerusalem. And the crowd has an expectation around Jesus. The crowd has an expectation that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he is going to deal with the Romans. Jewish tradition and expectation, they had misunderstood their Old Testament. They had misunderstood the promise of the Messiah. They thought a Messiah was going to come, and when Messiah appeared, he would immediately do what was right, drive these Romans away and rescue them. So Jesus told them a parable to set them straight. Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Now, what's a parable? A parable is a fictitious story to tell you a great truth. Jesus is a master at it. He invents stories. He takes real-life situations that would have been very familiar to the listener and buries spiritual truth in them. And I don't have time to go into this, but as you listen, please consider this. Jesus tells us elsewhere that the parable itself always reveals the heart of the listener. And that people who have a good heart toward him will benefit from him and go further with him. Those who are already hard-hearted toward Jesus, they won't understand it. They'll ignore the truth of the parable. So listen to him tell the parable and try to listen with an open heart. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. Don't miss this. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Everybody knows Jesus is on this journey. They can see he's headed into Jerusalem. It's quite clear where he's headed. They think the kingdom of God is going to come now. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they imagine him as a conquering ancient general on a charger. They imagine him perhaps with the sword in his hand to drive out Roman soldiers, to bring them economic, spiritual relief, and to restore the kingdom of God to the people of Israel. And because he knew that was in the crowd, the crowd is walking with him to Jerusalem. Because they're going with him, he tells them this parable. Listen to it, verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, don't miss this, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. Well, now you can tell we're in the ancient world of the Bible. What in the world is a mina? I always try to read it in Spanish and say mina, which means mine in Spanish, okay? What is a mina? A mina is a portion of money in the ancient world. It's about, your Bibles may actually translate it, depending on the English translation you chose, it's about three months of a workman's salary. It's a pretty good chunk of money. And this king, this nobleman, has ten servants. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. He's going away to a distant country. He there is going to receive a kingdom. He distributes a portion of his wealth to his servants, one minute each, and says, 
give me a return on this. Get busy, get working, invest this for me while I return. And verse 14 says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. If you can't already tell where this is going, Jesus, and this is why it's shocking, is speaking about himself. He has all kinds of people around him. Some are in relationship with him. Some are like his disciples who are serving them, who are serving him. He is entrusting them with things and giving them authority and skill to do work on his behalf. But verse 14 says there are others, there's a larger group. Look, let's read the Bible together. What is their feeling toward this king? Verse 14, they, they do what now? I hate it. Have you noticed that Jesus causes a mixed reaction today? This church service is an example of it. We've been singing songs to and about Jesus. I've been telling you he's actually the Son of God. I addressed him in prayer and spoke in his name with the actual expectation that according to the Bible, there is a God who is there who is listening. There is a God who made me, who I'm accountable to because I'm not a cosmic accident and I certainly didn't create myself. There is a God who listens. As we sit here, you can be reminded just by the noise of the cars, there's untold thousands of people, millions of people who are going somewhere else. They may have been to church already, no judgment on them. I don't know who they are. But Jesus causes a mixed reaction. Some love him and worship him and seek him and pray to him, expecting him to answer as the God who is there. Many other people think candidly, you're wasting your time this morning. You're singing to someone who does not exist. If you start talking to more people, if you start spreading your little circle of, of relationships out where you're actually going to find people all over the world and increasingly in the United States who find the very idea of Jesus contemptible, who actually hate him. What Jesus is doing in this parable I'm going to show you is painting a very dramatic picture of the world as he finds it. He's going to invite his disciples to find themselves in the parable. He's going, to listen, he's going to warn the crowd about the person that he actually is. He's going to ask everybody to adjust their attitude according to the truth. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. This is report card time. It's time for the return on investment report. There's going to be some accountability. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. Now, I know the word minna makes the story a little strange, but let's just imagine, okay, Let's give you a nice wage. Let's imagine that you make $10,000 a month. Wouldn't that be nice? Okay, so you've been given three, port, three months worth of your salary. That's $30,000. So this man's been given $30,000 to work and invest. How much did he come back with in my example? He came back with? Say it with confidence, folks. Your arithmetic is correct, $300,000. 
He's given a 10 to 1 return. Does anybody have a financial manager who can give them a tenfold return? If you do, would you send me the number? Uh, I don't mind if you take a second to do it right now, even as I'm preaching, okay? These returns just aren't available in the modern world. They actually were in the ancient world. This guy, well, what do you think? You think he did a good job or a bad job? He did a tremendous job. And look at his reward. Verse 17, he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten, what? Does that seem like a proportionate reward to you? I mean, granted, the guy did a great job, but he says, now you're going to rule over ten cities. Wow. It's a good reward. The next man comes, verse 18. The second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. How'd this guy do? You folks are spoiled. This guy gave a, a five-to-one return, and you don't think he's that good of a financial investor. Come on, folks. He did a spectacular job, not quite as good as his friend, but still an amazing, faithful, good return on investment. He said to him, you are to be over five cities. What Jesus is telling, and we haven't come to the shocking part yet, it's big, it's colorful, it's larger than life, but the shocking part comes at the end because Jesus always knows how to tell a story. Jesus is telling you a story about a noble man who is going far away to receive a kingdom, and he's telling you what he himself is like. What is Jesus like? Well, he's rich, and he's generous. There's no one in the world who will reward you the way this man rewarded his servants. Lord, while you were away, we made your return. I made a return on your investment tenfold. You trusted me with a dollar. Here are ten back. You're in charge of ten cities now. Wow. No one will do that for you. That's simply not available. That is generosity. That is grace. That is wealth shared. The next man five minas, five cities. The king is rich and he is generous, but Jesus warns, though he is served by some, he's also hated by others. But make no mistake, his announcement is that he will return. This king, Jesus is the point of the parable, Jesus is returning someday to rule. They don't realize it at the moment. The disciples themselves cannot begin to imagine and understand all that this parable meant. They wouldn't understand, really, the point of this kind of parable until they saw the Lord back from the dead. Because in Luke's telling, the cross for Jesus is straight ahead. He is telling them a story of his coming to earth and his return in glory someday. He is returning someday to rule, but don't miss the point for the disciples. His instructions to his servants are in Luke 19, verse 13. He says to the people who serve him, engage in business until I come. Let me bring it out of the parable and into your real-world existence. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, if you are those who have the privilege of calling yourself a Christian, you serve a great king. He made the world and everything in it. 
Huntington Beach is an easy place to see the glory of God. You can go to our coast, you can drive to the end of Warner alone and stand on a quiet beach and see the majestic Pacific roll in. You can drive further south down to South Orange County and see the cliffs. You can see in our own wetlands. I saw it this morning. I'm out early. One of the effects of the pandemic, I've become a pre-dawn walker. I walk at least two and sometimes six miles in the morning. Wetlands are beautiful, by the way. Just don't go all there out there at the same time. It'll ruin it for the rest of us, okay? Nobody, uh, let's not crowd them. They're awesome. But as I was out there this morning, watching the sunrise, seeing coyotes actually come by, watching ducks and geese fly overhead, literally watching fish jump out of the channel and splash around, apparently just for fun, and was just a reminder of what the Lord is like. This world has been tainted and ruined by sin. Everybody knows that, but look at the glory of His creation. He's rich. He's generous. He calls people into relationship with Him, and we have the privilege of serving Him. If you're a Christian, you have a relationship with the King. The God who is actually there knows you by name and entrusts you with some of His wealth and some of His authority so that you will serve Him faithfully. And His instructions to you are, engage in business until I come. But there's a third servant. There's a third servant of these that have received the minas, and His story is the most important and the most heartbreaking. Look in verse 20. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. How'd this guy do? Don't read ahead in the story. Just take it as it comes. How'd he do? Not good. What'd he do with the money? He just hid it. He just salted it away somewhere. Look at verse 21. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. If you understand this parable, you have to understand the engagement between the king and this servant. Look carefully, please, at verse 21. What did he just say about his boss? He says, You're harsh. But it goes further than that. He describes what he believes this king is like. What does, he, what does he claim that he does? Just put it in your own words. He's a thief. Did you catch that? Verse 21. You are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. In other words, I was so afraid of you because I believe you're the kind of man who raids other people's banks, bank accounts and plunders other people's fields. And I was so afraid of the kind of man you are that I hid the money. Here it is what you gave me. Here's where the shock begins. Verse 22, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You, notice the adjective, you wicked servant. 
You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. That's not agreement. He's saying, you believe that I'm the kind of man who takes what does not belong to me. Here's the question. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. In other words, if you think I'm this demanding, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you do the simple thing with what I entrusted you? you at very, if you were going to hide it, you at least could have hid it in a bank account, and I could have at least had interest. Verse 24, he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. In other words, what's, what's the king in this parable doing? He's taking away from the man who is faithless, and who's he giving it to? The one who was the most faithful. You ever heard the old expression that the rich get richer? Did you know it was a Christian idea? It's right here. All of these people were given in relationship with the king an equal opportunity. Two of them were faithful. They just had different skill levels. Both of them were extravagantly rewarded in proportion with what they chose to do with their king's trust. The third man revealed himself to be someone who did not know or love or trust the king at all. He thought he was in relationship with a thief. He refused to serve him. He brought him nothing. And in verse 26, this verse alone sounds a little bit like Jesus almost breaking character as the parable, as the parable storyteller and giving you a principle to bank on, Christian. Verse 26 says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Nothing from nothing is nothing. This man was given something that did not belong to him. He did nothing with it. He betrayed his master's trust because, as it turns out, his heart was far from the king. He thought he was in relationship with a harsh thief. And the king says, very well, since you did nothing with it, take it away from him and give it to the one who served me most and best. Don't miss this. In your relationship with God, the more you trust Him and the more you serve Him, the better it gets. No one in the history of their relationship with Jesus has ever come to the point where, upon meeting Him in glory, will ever say, I wish I would have trusted Him less. Can you imagine someone at the day that Jesus is describing here in, in a parable form coming face to face with the Savior who actually literally died on a cross for them, actually rose from the, day, from the grave and gave absolute, as I'm going to show you, gave sustained historic proof that he was who he claimed to be, that he had risen from the dead to forgive sin. Can you ever imagine a Christian meeting Jesus at the end of their life and the beginning of eternal life and looking squarely in the face of the Lord and saying, I wish I would have trusted you less? You have not given me a good return on the trust and the service that I gave you. It's never happened. Listen, by God's grace, I'm a third-generation Christian. My grandfather was a wicked man who was gloriously saved and started telling people about Jesus 
as soon as he knew who Jesus was. In fact, his early sermons were filled with zeal and not much knowledge. One of the first sermons, we're told, had Jesus arrested, killed, and risen again all in the Garden of Gethsemane. (laughs) He knew the historical facts. He wasn't clear on the geography just yet. But that changed the course of our history. And for those of you who are in relationship with Jesus, who have trusted Him enough to forgive your sin and save your soul, let me further trust you to serve Him with all your heart. Because it is a great irony, it is actually a great foolishness to think that the King can save you from hell and give you eternal life, but He cannot be trusted with what He gives you on this earth to serve Him. The more you serve Him, the more you trust Him, the more you entrust yourself and all that you have to Him, the greater you will be rewarded. The rich truly do get richer. His instructions to His servants, again, this is a word for disciples, engage in business until I come. And then the 27th verse and the shocking twist in the story. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Wow. And I keep reading the next verse, hoping for some relief. And there's no relief. There's the triumphal entry. Why is this parable here, and why is it directly in front of the triumphal entry? And after all these stories of people who have come seeking Jesus, you may remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, give your money away and come and follow me. You'll have a great reward and you'll have eternal life. And that man walked away sad. Zacchaeus, who had, enriched him, who had enriched himself through wickedness and sin, actually gave most of it away and followed Jesus and was promised a place in the family of God instead. Now Jesus is pulling back from all of that and warning everybody who thinks he's on his way to Jerusalem to conquer that he's actually on his way to die. But they should make no mistake. One day he will return. One day he will rule. And there will be justice for those who deserve it and mercy for those who trust Him. This is what I mean by saying that people don't want to deal with Jesus as He is. When it comes time to think about the hard attributes of God and the hard attributes of His Son, like righteousness and holiness, people tend to push those ideas about God out of their minds because what I want for myself is mercy. What I want for people who hurt me, can you guess what I want for them? Justice. The announcement of the Bible of the God who is actually there, of the King who actually rules, who came to heaven to die on the cross, and whose return is just as certain as His birth is that Jesus is filled with mercy, but also filled with justice. And He will call the whole world to Himself. He will ask every person in the world to give an account for the life that He gave them and what they chose to do with it. Our 
orders are to engage in business to give him a good return on his investment until he returns for us. So in closing, since most of the people here are already disciples of Jesus, let me give you three attitude adjustments for disciples who are serving this king. This, I believe, is the point in the parable. These are the things that Jesus was trying to correct in his disciples then that I find, and the pandemic has made it very clear, Jesus needs to correct even still in his disciples today. Number one, Jesus wants his disciples to know that it's not so much about kingdom now as until he returns. See, if you listen to a lot of Christian media, you're going to find what I could call a kingdom now kind of theology. In other words, health, wealth, success, right here, right now. If you're in relationship with Jesus, everything's going to be awesome. And if you're not succeeding, it's just because you need to buy this book or do this one thing or trust him a little bit more or do this one little thing. Primarily, it has to do with the preacher sometimes, not so much about Jesus, but it's a kingdom now theology. It's a rule right now theology. Jesus told that parable because he could sense the crowd wanted the kingdom right then and right there. The kingdom will come when the king wants it to. The king will return at a time of his choosing, not ours. Number two, it's not so much for disciples who have to live here and now, who are living in a time of exile, not a time of power. It's not so much about our knowledge as our faithfulness. I don't know if you've noticed, but since the pandemic began, and especially in the last several months, a lot of Christians have been taking to the airwaves to make prophecies to say that they've had dreams and they've had visions and God has spoken to them and they've been very specific, naming human leaders, naming dates, and naming events. I could back up the tape and show you that in the time since they've started making those prophecies, many of them have been continually mistaken. By the way, the standard of prophecy in the Bible always is if the prophet is wrong one time, God didn't send him. In the Old Testament, the standard was if the prophet is wrong, what did they do? They killed him. Okay. Modern-day prophets don't accept that standard. What's going on here? Christians in time of suffering and pressure. Notice, this is an attitude adjustment. It's not a 180. It's not that you're turning away from knowledge. It's that you're putting knowledge in its rightful place and you're giving faithfulness the priority. In times of pressure, God has not promised to tell you everything that He knows. He insistently, stubbornly will not show you the timeline. So always be very mindful and be very careful of Christians who claim that they have heard from him with certainty and that they have the timeline clear in their mind. It's a common problem. It's one that's affected me and my own family. But look, please, in Acts chapter 1, I'm going to show you that Christians who are more concerned about knowledge of the future rather than faithfulness in the present, which is what Jesus wants, are in really good company. Look in Acts chapter 1. And while you turn there from the Gospel of Luke, you'll find the Gospel of John, then the book of Acts. 
Please remember that Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. It's really one work in two volumes. Luke tells you the story of the life of Jesus. The book of Acts tells you the tail end of the life of Jesus before he returns to glory and what the apostles did in response serving him as their king. Acts chapter 1 verse 6. Everybody got it? That was wildly discouraging. Folks, everybody with me? Okay. Thank you. Acts chapter 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, well, let's back up a little bit. Verse 3, Jesus is back from the dead, and here's what's happening. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom of God. So Jesus is back from the dead. He is showing up with his disciples in ordinary life, doing things like having meals with them and He is with them for how many days, does Luke say? Forty. For over a month, Jesus was resuming his life with his disciples. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll discover that once he cooked them breakfast and served it to them. And they were so freaked out, they were dumbstruck, sitting around the fire, watching him eat, eating themselves. Nobody wanted to say anything because they're having breakfast with the man they watched die. Of course they were shaken. And understandably, he took 40 days to prove to them, this isn't a hallucination, it's not an apparition, none of you are dreaming, it's nothing that you've conspired. I'm back, I'm with you for 40 days. Now down to verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Here's their mindset. We thought when you went to Jerusalem the first time, we thought you were going to take over. Now we get it. You needed to prove that you're in charge of death itself. But you're back, Jesus. Surely now, after you've been teaching us about the kingdom, now we're going to get on horses and go take care of the Romans, right? That's the mindset. Verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Put that in your own words. What did he just tell them? None of your business. Are you okay dealing with that, Jesus? Because listen, the prophet who is constantly promising relief because God told him that it'll, it'll all be over on Wednesday... He's either made a simple human mistake or he's speaking to another spirit or another person to have that revelation. Jesus said, the Father knows. It's not your concern, and don't miss what follows. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they thought he would conquer and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Did you just read that? What, action, what actually happened here? He said, I'm nearly done, hang with me. None of your business when I'm restoring the kingdom to Israel. I will. But it's not up to you to know when. Your job is to give witness to me 
everywhere. And when he said that, he left. How did they take it? Well, he took it just as you and I might have taken it. While they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you see the humor there? They were like this. And two angels, that's, what, that's what's happening here. Two men come from God and said, chop, chop, boys, you have your orders. And the rest of the book of Acts shows how they, through fear, through conflict, often with disbelief, but with extraordinary faithfulness, gave up on their insistence to have the kingdom now and focused instead on being faithful to Jesus right then, and they took the gospel to the ends of the world. And so are the Wilsons in Rwanda. And so are our missionaries in Beirut. And so are our missionaries in Karachi, Pakistan, who with your help have literally saved their congregation from physical starvation and malnutrition during this pandemic. People are being saved there. People are hearing the gospel in places that I can't even mention if we're going to put this on the internet. People are coming to Christ all over the world because disciples in all corners of the world have given up on their stubborn, selfish insistence to understand everything that God knows, including the things that God has reserved to Himself, and have focused instead on being faithful. Finally, number three, an attitude adjustment for disciples. Think less of relief and think more of your reward. As some of you know, one of my sons just went through some very, very difficult military training. Very selective course he went through that a lot of people don't complete. As he went through it, once it was over and his mind cleared and he slept and ate and he could talk again in a normal fashion, he told me of a Christian chaplain that would often talk to them and encourage them, knowing that a lot of them were on the verge of quitting. And he said one of the things that the chaplain kept saying was, you can quit today to get a good meal and a good night's sleep, and then you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And that reminder kept them going. You see, the Lord knows what human nature is like. One of the things that is undertaught in the Bible, but one of the reasons this parable is so dramatic in its proportions, that someone is given a decent size of money and is rewarded by faithful service with authority, not over more money, but over entire cities, is that Jesus, in His goodness and in His kindness, gives Christians a little time, a little money, a little talent, a little skill to serve Him. He tells them to engage in business, to get busy working for Him, to be His witnesses until He returns. And He says pretty tersely, it's none of your business when I'm coming back, just know that I will. And use what I've given you right now to give witness to me. And the reward that you will enjoy if you're faithful to the King is greater than I could ever tell you. 
I promise you that these men in the parable, in this fictitious world that Jesus created to teach through fiction a great and future truth, a man walking away having surrendered a little bit of money, walking away finding himself ruling over cities, must have thought to himself, now that's a great king. I just did the best I could, and he has put me in charge of more money and more people than I could ever have imagined. That's your king. Serve him faithfully. Don't think so much about relief. Look further ahead to the reward that the king in his generosity will give to you. Because I guarantee you, you've made a joke during the pandemic. I know I have. How many times have you joked since this thing started that you just wish the Lord would come back and get it over with? Just get us out of here, right? Listen, the desire for relief is normal. That's part of his rescue. That will be part of your salvation. But this parable is about more than relief. Relief is just that. Relief gets you out of trouble. Jesus is promising something that is even better than relief. Along with relief, he promises to give you a great reward. So make no mistake, when Jesus returns, he will both reward and punish. He really is the coming king. The stories written by people like Tolkien and Lewis resonate because really they're just giant parables illustrating the gospel truth of the lion who is dangerous but good of the king who really will return. Those are all, again, fictions to teach this great truth. And the best you can do, Christian, is to give the Lord a good return on his investment when he returns for you. His instructions to you are simple. You have a short time before his return. His return is imminent, and if you don't mind me mentioning it, so is your own death. If you don't find that the, Lord, the return of the Lord is imminent, think about your own fragility. Think about what little time you have to serve Him and do so with faithfulness, looking not so much for rescue but for faithfulness to Him so that you can do all that you can with what He has entrusted to you. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, particularly in this second service, Most of us who gather here already have a relationship with you. But I pray that in the minute to come, Lord, as we reflect on what you've warned us and what you've promised us in this parable, you would call disciples to greater faithfulness. And if someone doesn't know you, I pray that they would. Two questions. The first, do you know this Savior? He really is. As he, tells him, as he tells us. You will ignore him and put him off to your own harm. He's patient. He's good. He's so generous, he died for you. He saw you separated from him in sin, and he died for you to welcome you, to offer you entry for free at the cost of his life into the family of God. If you don't know him, my invitation to you is to trust him whether you're online or here in the tent, that you would turn to Jesus and turn yourself in. See that good and generous king portrayed in the parable who will someday return to judge everyone. 
genuine servants, false servants who actually had nothing but contempt from him, for him and considered him a thief, others who actually hated him. Because he's God, he'll judge everybody. That day is coming. There will be mercy for those who trust him and judgment for everybody else. My question is, do you know him? Has he saved you? If he hasn't, my invitation to you is that you will turn to him and say, Jesus, I'm turning myself in. You might be a little shocked. You might be a little scared. You might be a little confused. This is a hard parable and a great deal to explain. But with what you understand about Jesus, you're ready to give up on you and trust him instead. If you do that, he'll save you. I know it. He did it for me. He did it for my family, for most of us, for three generations now. Jesus has changed lives and saved souls here in my family, in this church, and all across the world. So if you do that, turn to him and let us know. Fill out a card, send us a text. Let us know that today you've turned yourself over for service to the king. And disciples, you've just been hanging on, waiting for relief been listening to prophets, trying to ease your pain and your pressure by understanding things that God hasn't promised to explain to anyone. Focus on faithfulness instead. Folks, we don't have much time. It's one life. It's not much income. It's not much time. It's not much talent that we have, but let's give it all to him. I promise you someday, because all this is true, we will worship together with him. We won't need human instruments anymore. We'll have the glory of the king and we'll have the joy of each other and you will tell me then that I didn't tell you nearly well enough how good he was and how greatly he would reward us. Jesus, make us faithful. Make us your witnesses. In this confusing time where some hate and deny you and minimize you, others say that you do not exist or you do not you are not the way you yourself tell us you are. Help us to hear your voice and to walk faithfully with you and to serve you well until you come or call us home. Lord, may you find us faithful, more focused on our faithfulness than on our relief. And if we do that, we will have served you well. You will be pleased. And we will hear commendation and praise from you as these men did in the parable. And thank you in advance that we will be more delighted than we could ever have imagined. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, and Crosspoint said, amen. Folks, a word in closing. I know these are hard days. I know some of you are hurting because it just keeps coming. And for some of you, it's gotten a lot harder for economic reasons, for personal reasons. Please understand the point of being a family is that we face these things together. You were not designed and you were not saved to go through it alone. You have the Lord, your strength, your God, your King, your sure reward. You have Him and you have a family of fellow disciples to walk the journey with you. God bless you. Thanks for sticking with us in this Gospel of Luke. It's filled with beautiful promises and hard truths. It's all for our good and it's all for God's glory. If you need prayer today, there's folks waiting for you right over there where it says kids check in. Hope you'll stop by and pray with them. God bless you. Love you. See you soon.